1: Go for launch. OK, all flight controllers,
2: let's play it cool. All engines are started.
1: That looks really good.
2: So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank.
1: Oh, wow, it's going up so
3: slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah?
0: Welcome to Space Buffins. We're back to our tried and tested formula of two hosts, a studio, and two excellent guests although you should probably be the judge of that. Uh, We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and here's my co-host, or do you prefer presenter?
4: I think Queen or she who must be a better Anyway, Sue Nelson. Yes, our guests are the science and space writer Oliver Morton, who is also the Briefings Editor of The Economist, and Space Insurer and Engineer David Wade of the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Now, we're going to be discussing a return to the Moon and giant rockets. The two are of course connected uh, with a report too from Richard from NASA. And we'll also celebrate Apollo 10, a mission that almost went disastrously wrong.
1: We found out, yeah, we are vulnerable. No matter how good we thought we were, no matter how many times we rehearsed it, you can screw up.
0: David, we should, I think, clarify before we go any further, you don't actually insure space. (laughs) You you insure the things that go into space.
2: Yeah, we insure the rockets that take the satellite into space and we insure the satellites once they're in space.
0: Now, I know we've asked you this before, because you've been a guest on the podcast before. Why? Why do you need insurance if you're launching stuff?
2: But typically, the bank will not lend you the money unless you have the insurance. So, you know, some of these projects are... Tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars. I mean, a very large communication satellite now might be $600 million. And no bank, no investor is going to put that kind of capital uh, into a project unless they know that they've got some security to pay them back if something goes wrong.
0: I suppose it's extraordinary you think about it, because you're building this amazing machine and then sticking it on a rocket.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way at the moment, though. Um, you know, we've still got that same technology that we've been relying on all these years. You know, it's, it's Rocket technology is the only way to take us there until we get something like a space elevator or you know, some new opportunity that uh, that will take payloads up into space. I would like to say that I would like to be insured if I was travelling on a space
5: elevator. As well. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, Oliver, um, it's their 50th anniversary of the moon landings. so I think I'm pretty sure most of our listeners <laughs> will know that this year. It's a pretty crowded uh, market for moon books at the moment, but naturally we're only featuring the best ones. Uh, <laughs> your one is The Moon, A History for the Future. Who would you say it's aimed at?
5: Well, I would say the same to people who are interested in the moon and people who aren't interested in the moon. I'm trying to cover uh, cover the, cover the <laughs> waterfront, <laughs> so but paper, it's not yeah. it's not a it's not a book that's saying, "Yay, moon! You've always want to know more about the moon because obviously there are lots of people who do, and they might buy my moon book anyway." But it's also a book about for people who say, "I just see the moon sometimes, and I kind of wonder," and it talks a little bit about that about the moon as this sort of like little bit of the earth off in the sky that's part of our lives and maybe part of our futures and part of how we've thought about the world in past times
4: and it's lo- it's actually it's very it's beautifully written and very poetic and we'll hear a lot more about it later but I just want to as you could you've got an endorsement there from Rusty at the at the beginning he's from uh, Apollo 9 astronaut how did you manage that one
5: I met Rusty when he and when I was a journalist interested and he was thinking a lot about the uh, danger of killer asteroids. Um, Rusty used to run something called the B612 Foundation which existed to alert people to the fact that now and then asteroids hit the earth and by and large that's something that you want to avoid. (laughs) And we got on very well and kept in touch a little bit and I can't claim that I've got a Rolodex that's absolutely full of magnificent Apollo astronauts. We have. Yeah. I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, uh, and you know, because I'm fond of Rusty, I gave him the book and said, "What do you think of this?" And he was kind enough to say that he liked it.
4: Oh, fabulous! fabulous. I spoke
0: to Rusty only the other day.
4: Oh God, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew there would be trying up that.
0: No, he is delightful. Absolutely delightful. He I've was never met him David and I in the last he was in the last podcast yes, if you want care
4: still to not. Listen. yes I still yeah. haven't met him <laughs> yeah.
5: I think th- one, one thing that's wonderful about Rusty is that he was the first person ever to get any really unscheduled time on a spacewalk because uh, when he was outside um, Apollo 9 um, I think Jim McDivitt had to move from one hatch to another to change a camera angle or something and so Rusty was he was the first person who was just hanging there with nothing to do and years later he wrote a wonderful sort of like prose poem about it called no frames no boundaries wonderful piece of writing
0: oh. yeah Now I think he's he is one of the most thoughtful ast- astronauts he also took with him I didn't know this till the other day we were interviewing him for this uh, world service program that I'll, I'll mention later a lot I'll mention it a lot <laughs> later because I'm really pleased with it um, but he actually took quotes up with him he would spend his Sunday nights listening to classical music at home on Sunday nights he'd put the kids to bed and sit in his study going through quotes that he would then take with him up into space I mean how many of those Apollo astronauts would do that? I think he's an extraordinary extraordinary man Absolutely yeah. Or oh, is it me now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we're going to chat more about the future of lunar exploration later but let's talk about the giant rockets you need to get there
5: Here We have ignition sequence style. The engines are on. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit. We have have liftoff. Liftoff at
0: 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Apollo 8, the first launch of a Saturn V rocket, still the most powerful launcher ever built. 50 years on, NASA is close to the first flight of its replacement, the SLS or Space Launch System, designed to carry the crewed Orion capsule to the Moon and Mars. But do we actually need it?
4: Well, well, it's been um, suggested, uh, even reportedly by senior NASA figures, that the project might be scrapped. And several people on the Space Boffins Facebook page, actually, including Michael McLaughlin, have been asking why NASA couldn't use SpaceX's Falcon Heavy. Instead.
0: Well, before we get into that discussion, let's head to the Vehicle Assembly Building, the VAB, at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, which is a massive structure. You can see it for, for miles from the surrounding area. It's the building where they assembled the Saturn V and the space shuttle. Now it's being adapted for the SLS. Our guide is Ken Tenbush, a senior NASA engineer who's overseeing the project. It is five hundred and twenty five feet
3: tall, all open, um, so that you could build a vehicle like the Saturn V and Apollo, which stood three hundred and seventy foot plus tall, and be able to still stack that one you know step at a time and then actually still even roll it out once even stored on a mobile launcher so that's how big this vehicle is that it can actually you know basically process huge gigantic heavy lift type vehicles
0: so Tell me about the SLS. What, what is it? What does it stand
3: for? It's the most powerful vehicle that will ever be made. It's powerful even as if you wanted to like to compare it to, to the Saturn V rocket, it's got 10% more power even of that vehicle, which was at the, at the time is still the mark of, hey, this is the vehicle to try to uh, resemble and try to meet that kind of uh, power that that vehicle
0: had. And what's its destination? What what's the the purpose of it? Because this is a whole, you know, fifty years on after Apollo, this is a whole new ambition, really, for NASA.
3: It is, yeah. We're um, we went, we'd wind up going to the to the moon first um, to to basically almost like test out the capabilities of this vehicle, verify that it can you know do long duration space, and then eventually we'll we'll look to this has got the power to be able to take you to a direct insertion into a Mars uh, mission. So. That's the long-term goal, you know, maybe out, maybe two or three decades away.
0: And the Saturn V had these multiple stages. You go stage one, stage two, stage three. How is the SLS going to compare? Because you've got solid rockets instead or as well as. Yeah, you've got that first stage
3: of two solid rocket boosters that take you through to the first two minutes and a few seconds of flight. Really provide super high power on the order of 3.5, 3.6 million pounds of thrust between each booster. So you yeah, you're looking at over 7 million pounds of thrust just from those two solids and four engines. Those 4 RS25 engines that again give you about 500,000 pounds of thrust per. So that's a lot of power at liftoff to be able to, to break that bond of gravity, you know. So you've got to be able to have a huge amount of force off that initial stage. So that's what the SLS rocket'll give you. And that's why you're able to lift the 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 amount of metric tons you know, as far as into deep space, because you've got all that capability to lift all that mass right at liftoff.
0: But actually, you've got the engines, you've got a huge amount of fuel. You're only actually carrying four people at the top. Four people at the top, but then also with the capability to to bring
3: in other payload as well in the future, which is really the key to that long duration space travel. Even this, this first uh, vehicle that we have here um, that's going to get upgraded through, you know, the, the, this first vehicle is a, um, is a block. They call it like a block design. And um, we'll have a block 1B design that will get us even more. And then finally a block 2 design of the same vehicle. When we're actually done, we'll go from a 70-metric uh, ton kind of payload capability out to about 130, 135-metric ton capability because you're going to need to bring in you know, a quarter of a million pounds of everything else you need for supplies for a deep space mission. Or even if you were to try to colonize the moon or colonize Mars, you still need that capability to be able to take that kind of heavy payload um, and support structure that you're going to need for those deep space missions.
0: Just describe then what we're looking at, because we've got the, the vehicle assembly building and we're in a older part, if you like, of the, of the building. And, you know, this dates back to the, the 1960s, built for Saturn V. And then we look across from the other side of the, the, the main bay here. this great high building. And, you know, we're pretty high up, and there's still more above us. And then you've got all this new section over here. So what are you building here at the moment?
3: Right now, um, what you've got here is a mobile launcher. And this is the structure that will wind up going out to the pad and give you all the different umbilical, uh, pneumatic, electrical, hydraulic, all the other things that you're going to need as far as with the um, with the umbilicals that actually provide all the other commodities to this particular vehicle to be able to process it. All that's going to be done right here off the mobile launcher as they actually take it out to the pad. So you've got this huge structure and capability to be able to, to bring that in to the launch vehicle and to the uh, Orion spacecraft. And so... Yeah, that's a huge structure that is basically going to be your ability to be able to carry it out to the pad so you can launch it at the pad. There's a crawler transporter that has to come up underneath that, lift that up, and actually bring that out and then drop that onto stanchions out at the pad and then get it ready for launch. So, it's, again, you've got to be able to support that through all kinds of different umbilicals to each of those parts of this spacecraft from top to bottom.
0: Now, I can't help but notice there's no SLS in here yet. What's your timeline looking like? I mean, how soon will you start to get hardware in here and then start thinking about, well, actually launching?
3: We actually do have some hardware here. There's some over at the SSPF. And and so, yeah, we do have... And, and right there, we have the um, Orion stage adapter. It's already been built and shipped here to KSC, kind of monitoring that, maintaining it um, while we're waiting to lift that in here. Um, but the... Um, the probably the the pole that we're kind of waiting for here a little bit is the um the actual core stage they're building that they've you know got sections of that built it's being built at MAF at Michoud assembly facility in new orleans and so once that gets here you know don't have an exact time frame um but yeah the got, got some solid rocket boosters in promontory utah they're already built they're ready to be shipped so the pieces are there it's just a matter of waiting for everything to be ready to be put together, and once that core stage is complete, it'll be shipped here, and we'll be ready to go.
0: You seem pretty fired up. I mean, it's is it is there genuine buzz around all this?
3: Always, when you're part of something this incredible, you know, to build a launch vehicle that can actually take us into deep space, a launch vehicle that can carry huge amounts of payloads to be able to allow that to happen. Yeah, it's, it's great to be part of something so enormous, so much bigger than you yourself, you know. But all the teaming and everything that has to be done to make that happen, it's an incredible piece of work for humankind.
0: That's Ken Tenbush, and yes, it was a very cool location in the Vehicle Assembly Building. I mean, he, he used all these imperial measurements, and I can never quite get my head around those. Um, oh. Basically, 525 feet tall. It's, it's high. It, it's so big, it has its own weather system. So you can actually get clouds. You can actually be inside, and it rains in the Vehicle Assembly Building. That's how big it is. Also, I want to say, um, where we were standing, and I didn't mention that in the interview, you know the film Apollo 13? The one the, you're obsessed with, the best, by, yeah. the best space film ever yeah. made. When it, early on, where <laughs> Tom Hanks, the Jim Lovell character, is being told he's going to the moon by the, Deke Slayton, mm. they're standing on that balcony and the rockets being assembled by them. That's where I'm standing.
4: Oh, that's cool. Wow. because yeah. I have been I in know. that building actually when I did the um, Orion launch a couple of years ago. But just being at the bottom, looking up, and for. Our European and British listeners, um, I've worked out, it's about 170 metres high, all this feet and pounds. Oh, no, I couldn't quite get square. my head around.
0: Oh, SSPF, so- what do we think that is? Some think protection factor.
5: I, I think it's the
0: space shuttle payload facility. That would sound good. Um, yeah. Processing facility. Processing facility. Oh. Oh. Sorry, sorry. No, that's why you're here. Um, now, I, I've been reporting on the SLS for quite a few years uh, now. I've been lucky enough, and I think we've heard it in the podcast, uh, to see it under construction um, in New Orleans. Uh, David, what do what do you make of it? That the, the SLS.
2: I think it's a fantastic vehicle and it's probably what we do need if we're going to go back to the Moon and onto Mars. I've read the article sort of saying, you know, why can't we use smaller vehicles? But it's all about the capability, all about the mass that you can take into orbit. Um, As Ken said in that uh, interview, you know, we're talking 100 tonnes at a time that we need to take into orbit. And even something like Falcon Heavy, which is a massive rocket by modern standards, can still only take 60 tonnes or so into low Earth orbit. So, you know, you really do need a lot of capability up there. You need a lot of fuel as well as all of your assets to take you out there, to land, to bring you back again. You know, and it's probably going to take a vehicle of that size to be able to uh, assemble and, and those. As facilities. he said,
4: in terms of a moon base, if you are going to take up your equipment first and build your habitat and things like that, then actually that does make it far more suitable than a Falcon Heavy.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you're going to build things in stages, if you're going to launch uh, items on smaller vehicles, you then need somewhere to assemble it. So you probably need something like the lunar orbital um, platform uh, in orbit around the moon. You've got to build that. You've then got to launch fuel um, you're to refuel your your lander when you get there. So there's a there's a lot of capability, a lot of mass that has to be taken up and put in position.
0: So it still makes sense to have one big rocket rather than lots of little ones, putting lots of stuff up and putting it together in orbit. I,
2: I think you could do it either way, but certainly if you're going to assemble in orbit, assembly in orbit is not an easy task. Um, you know we've seen that in the past, but it's not something that's fantastically easy to do. Can I be the the
5: naysayer here? Absolutely. Um, I think it's a terrible rocket, <laughs> um, and I think the justifications for it, um, with all respect, are, are, are a little bit dodgy. Going to the it's a terrible rocket um, side, it's really being built with updated versions of. 80s and 70s technology, yeah. it's estimated that it's going to cost something along the lines of a billion dollars a launch, partly because of the very low cadence of launch and a very large number of people have to work on the project. Now, for a billion dollars, you can buy quite a lot of falcons. And the whole point, as I remember it, the whole justification on which the space station was sold was that it was going to teach people how to assemble things in orbit, And so if you go from having spent over $100 billion on the space station and say, but we still have to launch things in jolly great big lumps, then I think that the space station has clearly not done what it was meant to do unless what it was meant to do was maintain NASA's capability to
2: go on spending money in the southern states of America.
0: What what do you think, David?
2: Uh, The saving launching Falcon 9, Falcon Heavies may not be as great as you think. I mean, that 60-ton capability to low-Earth orbit is a fully expendable Falcon Heavy, so you're throwing the rocket away every time, that's $150 million.
5: I thought two of the firsts Uh, came back. If
2: you recover Mm. recover the vehicle, then your capability to low-Earth orbit is more like 20 tonnes. So you're looking at five flights of a Falcon Heavy in reusable um, format to uh, to equate to uh, to one of the SLS. so actually so, so when you start with
5: saving money then that's still it, it's half still saving the price. money but it's, then
2: you've got the additional cost of assembly and orbit, which is an expensive isn't
0: operation. there an, another issue here that one is public and one is private isn't there a, something to be oh, yeah, said but
4: David for something I to couldn't... be couldn't exist without. No, the injection no, I'm of arguing the other, no, money, no, I'm yeah. not thinking, arguing that.
0: that uh, actually, I'm,
2: no. I'm, I'm not trying to defend control- SLS no, in particular. No, but but uh, they're, they're, I mean, Elon Musk is now working on the BFR. Now that will have a similar capability. Now maybe that's the way to go. It's a single big rocket co- developed commercially. Maybe that's the answer. I'm not sort of trying to defend SLS over everything else. The only issue there is that it's probably not going to be in the time ready in the time frame that uh, you know Mike Pence and uh, Donald. Uh, Trump now want to be able to land people on the moon well, within five well, years. Well, actually, that's
4: was, that was the thing that made me sort of go, oh, when I had that interview, was the time frame. Because as we know, for the last decade, they've been talking about getting to Mars 2020, 2030s. And then all of a sudden he said two to three decades away. Well, that's basically approaching 2050. Now, that's an enormous <laughs> rescale of your ambitions that 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 to me was was so telling in terms of because norm, normally any personnel at NASA are so on message so that's obviously the new the new figure and and like you say Oliver the, the sort of SLS is, and we've seen the the mockups of the capsule, and you only have to see it when you know yourself online or whatever. It does look like an Apollo, big Apollo capsule on a on a great big rocket. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's you know, that, that's the other point
0: because it is designed. I mean, the Falcon Heavy isn't designed to launch Orion. SLS is designed to launch the Orion spacecraft. Yeah, isn't that slightly?
5: In fact, isn't that almost exactly a question of putting a cart before a horse? Um, I, mean, I think you know you design a rocket that can do good things, but I want to go back to some other things that came up in that talk. So, for instance, we were talking about how you'd seen the spacecraft, uh, you'd seen the uh, the SLS in under construction in New Orleans, which is you know not Kennedy, um, and they were talking about bringing down the um, uh, solid rocket boosters from Utah, which is again not Florida. Mm. Whereas one of the advantages, I think, I have no idea whether the BFR, and I'm glad we're not talking any of that sort of like Starship stuff, <laughs> it's the BFR. Uh, I've no idea whether the BFR is going to work well or not. But I do think that making it in the place where you're going to launch it is fairly obviously a good idea. But you can't do that if you're NASA, because you have to keep the people in the different states happy. And so that's why, you know, in Washington, uh, my, uh, in my understanding, it's, all, it's referred to almost always as the Senate launch system, not the space launch system because it's the senate that likes it and so you really do have this situation where a launch system is being built purely so that a launch system can be built and i'm not denying that it could have some uses but if you were going to stop and say how do we build a space infrastructure going on from here you would not say oh with space shuttle main engines
0: and some solid rocket boosters it's Just not what you would do. But, I mean, you know, if we look back at this, I mean, Apollo was a wholly political project. It was a a political ambition to get to the moon by the end of the decade. It became this amazing technological, engineering, scientific project, but it was only ever, let's get to the moon before the Soviet Union. And isn't this similarly a a political project? And isn't it naive to think that anything NASA does isn't a political project? No,
5: I I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not often mistaken. For a knife, but um, <laughs> but the but uh, it is a political. But the politics involved is what the French call the politics of the belly. Uh, it's the politics of spending, of going on spending money in Huntsville, Alabama, and other places around the United States. I mean, you can see this because the Saturn V was developed because America was going to the moon. The SLS has been developed because the SLS needs to be developed. You know, the, 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 the uses have swung back and forth between Mars and the moon and that weird cockamamie, let's catch an asteroid thing.
0: Um, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. Exactly. That was, that was, the, that was the purpose a few years ago, wasn't yes, it? Yes,
5: exactly. And now yeah. it's launching um, the, the lunar orbiting gateway. And, you know, the idea is basically we have a need to build
0: large rockets... Now let's do something with them, and that's not the way to do it. It does seem like that, doesn't it, Dave? Do you think sometimes that it's, it's absolutely what Oliver says, the cart before the horse, we've got to build a rocket. Uh, what do we do with it now?
2: As you know, I'm much more about uh, what we can do with satellites for the good of people on Earth. Um, you know, these things are inspirational, they are political. I mean, you know... Yes, you, you're right. I mean, you know, we went to the moon because of of the Russians. We probably, you know, Trump probably wants to go back now. You know, to uh, because of the Chinese uh, landing there. I mean, there's probably nothing more to it than that. Um, those things are inspirational, and I think that has an element to uh, to play. Personally, I would much prefer to send robots on uh, smaller rockets and use our money to put earth observation satellites up to study the planet uh, earth <laughs> uh,
0: what about because i mean you you have to understand rockets and how they work to, in, to ensure them I And mean, what about the russians i mean what uh, are they out of the game now have they are they sort of taken a, a back seat and just carrying on with soyuz and proton their tried and tested 60s technologies
2: pretty much so the zenith launch vehicle which became sea launch is is it was pretty much o- over now because that was part of Ukrainian, so the Ukrainian and Russian link isn 't working very well. <laughs> um, the um, uh, proton is still flying, but mainly domestic payloads very few uh, Western satellites are now being launched on proton and Soyuz is still the workhorse, um, but we continue to see workmanship issues out of uh, the, on the Russian vehicles as those best and brightest engineers from the 1960s hit retirement age and leave the industry. And they've been replaced by people who just don't have the, the understanding or the, uh, or the opportunity to learn on the job as much as they did in, say, the 60s. Yeah. So we keep it's on seeing things. It's claims. very sad. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely.
0: Very sad. Um, still to come, as promised, we'll talk moon bases and celebrate another of the missions that helped humanity reach the moon. This is Space Boffins, We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Our guests are engineer Dave Wade and writer and author of The Moon, is that what it's called? No, I've written a bit. Yes, yeah, it's, it's bit called the moon. it it's called the moon. Yeah, the moon: a history for the future. That's why but I thought moon. it was the moon. But it's okay. the moon. It's, yeah. it's got a colon. Oh, has it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess. Don't we all? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. So, <laughs> uh, engineer David Wade and writer and author of the moon, Oliver Morton.
4: <laughs> that sounds like the moon. The moon colon <laughs> Oliver Morton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <Okay>. That's right.
4: <laughs> Do get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us info at boffinmedia.co.uk. We'll post some pictures of our recording today. We must remember to take yeah, some. Then. Pictures. <laughs> I'm actually charging my phone. Yeah, everywhere. yeah, okay. and uh, that means they'll be you know slightly out of focus as per usual, and uh, some hopefully some good photos from you, Rich, from your uh, recent recording in yeah, Florida. Yes, so I was in
0: Florida with um, astronaut Nicole Stott, who is fantastic, and I'll put those pictures up. Uh, it's for a BBC World Service documentary I've been making called ten nine eight seven uh, which features the astronauts' perspectives on those incredible Apollo missions. It was I have to tell you a story of this. It was originally called and I you know the 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 nerd in me wanted to call it because it's right seven eight nine ten because it was in that order. But the World Service decided it sounded better as a countdown, ten nine eight seven. We literally tossed a coin to decide what it's called. But I'm sort of come round to it now, ten nine eight seven? I
4: yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Actually, me too. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Anyway, it features the astronauts' perspectives. into the BBC's production. <laughs> <Yes, exactly. laughs> <laughs> the BBC commissioning process. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, it includes the inside track on the uh, grumpy commander of Apollo Seven. I, I'm really pleased with it. We'll put some uh, more information of it up on our Facebook, uh, Twitter feeds, and all the other things.
4: Well, as we've touched on it already uh, to, in the podcast, everyone's talking about going back to the moon with a noticeable shift in space agency rhetoric from destination Mars to destination moon. So where are we going to live when we get there? Um, Oliver, you do actually, towards the latter part of the book, you do go into this. So it's you're not just looking at phases, explaining some of the... You know, the science and uh, mm-hmm. it that goes in, you you look ahead as well.
5: Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. One of the things that's changed about the moon, people often say, you know, so why are we going back to the moon when been there? And then so obviously chose not to go back for really quite a long time. And one of the things that's driving both the interest in return and the likely destinations of return is the... Near certain discovery that there are frozen volatiles, specifically water, um, in the permanently darkened craters at the moon's poles because the moon the moon sits very properly upright in its orbit and so at the poles the sun spends a lot of time just going right round on the horizon. And if you're in a crater, and even better if you're in a crater inside a crater, and since basically all there is to the moon is craters, that's not so rare, um, you can find places where the sun never rises and those places have had the chance to sort of like capture small little brief events of frost over the entire history of the solar system so how much water there is in there I don't think anyone really knows and quite what form it is but on the basis that water that you have to bring up from the earth is expensive and water that you just have to boil up in a kettle I mean a kettle that can work at 30 degrees absolute so you know quite a kettle but still a kettle um that's a big advantage and so there's a, a an interest in there's a I think a fairly strong consensus yeah. that an early base will be a polar base either north or south and in the announcement he made recently about this idea of America going back to the moon by 2024 uh Mike Pence I think specifically said the South Pole
4: Yes, and uh, it makes sense because the European Space Agency have also been looking at different concept designs and they've always been, uh, seem to be a lot at the bottom of craters, which, as you say, makes sense because if you've got water, you've got hydrogen, you've got oxygen, you've got potential uh, fuel source, make power source, electricity and...
5: Uh well, the, yeah, the electricity, of course, is the other thing, is that you don't want to be in the bottom of the crater there but you have the beautifully named by Claude Flammarion the peaks of eternal light at the poles which (laughs) these are the places which are always in sunlight so the obverse of the of the perpetually shaded craters and if you put a nice big sticky up mast with a solar panel on it there you can get light for something like 80% of the of the time and that's an a huge saving when you consider that on most of the moon you get light for fifty percent of the time, and you have to have two weeks worth of battery backup, um, and that's a lot of battery power. So, um, for that reason as well, the the, the for anything near anything. That you want, where you want to stay for a while, rather than sort of like look around for a bit, the 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 poles are the way to go.
0: So, would the idea of it, a moon base would be somewhere between the two? So, not right in, not in perpetual darkness, and, and not in perpetual light. You yeah, put them and sort of at the top of the crater, look, and be able well, to go you certainly
5: down. you probably you. Uh, you- Probably wouldn't want to put in perpetual darkness because you know engineering be in the miserable. cold, yeah. engineering in the cold is difficult. Engineering at sort of like forty-five to thirty k is that's really not something you want to do. Um, obviously, any sort of like long-duration moon base is probably going to be either sort of like cut and covered with regolith, um, or sort of like have some sort of like moon brick outer layer because you don't want people dying in the solar proton events. Um, So, yeah, you'll have it um, somewhere. I I suspect also that just for psychological purposes, you'll probably want to have it somewhere where people coming in and out of it can see the Earth. I think that's a very important part of what the human experience of returning to the moon is going to be, is going to be a, a sort of like deepening of that big, iconic moment that the world shared when the pictures of Earthrise came back from Apollo 8. And I think you'd you'd, you'd be kind of daft to build a moon base from which you can't see the Earth. Well,
4: actually, that ties in. I met quite a few um, space doctors, effectively, (laughs) sort of flight surgeons, who are based at the European Astronaut Training Centre in Cologne. And that's one of the things that they said was most important, is that really a lot of the existing training that they're doing can be is pretty suitable for for the space station as for the moon obviously they'll have to think a little bit more in terms of the the difference in uh, from microgravity to one sixth the 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 gravity but basically it's it's very similar but the thing that would be the issue is the psychological aspect abs absolutely and that's what happens as we know on places like antarctica where people always go a little bit barking or in places where you're in perpetual darkness like in the mm. North Pole where you don't get light for a, several several months at a time is making sure that you have those psychological aspects um, a that you are the right have got the right mindset to deal with it but also that's really interesting what you say is that the psychological aspect of seeing something that uplifts the spirits, although it could, of course, have the opposite effect of I, making you feel totally alone and isolated. But again, it, it would depend on who you are, isn't it? Your glass you, half full, um,
0: don't choose those people. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, is the technology there? Uh, Dave, to, to to do these things? I mean, is it basically possible, assuming we're going to use the SLS? Uh, yeah, I
2: mean, the, the technology is there to build the base. It's a matter of getting the mass there. I mean, as Oliver said, you probably have to bury it to stop the, the radiation uh, poisoning of the astronauts. But there's certainly the, the technology there uh, in terms of a basic infrastructure. The There's, there's research going on looking at how you... You know, use that ice that you dig up to uh, you know to transform it and there's, there's companies now working on things like bulldozers and earth moving equipment for the moon so I mean there are companies well, who are already working on those technologies.
4: Well you need that because you, you cover your base yep. in a crater with tons and tons of regolith yes, which is fine because the regolith's there it's it's in in plentiful supply, but you do need the equipment yes. to move yeah. it there because yeah. you, and that's where you get back to your, which is your robotic vehicles. Yes, yeah. is, is, and you need to carry them. But you, know, them you, there. There. you there just be...
0: sell, you could send robots though, wouldn't you, Dave? You wouldn't bother with humans. Yeah, I, would,
2: I, I mean, I would envisage that you would have your your uh, crude station on the edge of the crater, um, you know, after a little bit of exploration of the of the uh, floor of the crater, then you would send your robotic machines down there to do all of the actual work. You really don't want space-suited astronauts, you know, hanging around heavy mechanical equipment. You know, the, the danger of accidents then is just far too great.
0: Oliver, do you ultimately envisage a a civilization on the moon, or at least the same way we've got the space station, you know, continuously occupied? Is is that something we're looking at in the future, potentially, with a moon base?
5: I always try to think about, you know, what would someone in 1919, being asked about stuff happening in 1969, (laughs) what would that person say? I think I honestly don't know. What I do know is that on... As part of the return to the moon, the human experience of the moon will be very different in various ways to the experience of the 1960s and 70s because it will be an experience that will be shared by a greater range of people in the flesh. And so far, no woman has travelled beyond low Earth orbit. No one other than a white American male has. And that's going to change. That's very obviously going to change you're also going to get the people who are sharing in the view because you're not going to be looking back at the world that is just a world of superpower conflict and a a world that you've never really seen that way before, you're going to be looking back at a world that is increasingly dominated by Asia. You're also going to be looking back not at an environment that you can say iconically, oh, we must protect this. You're going to be looking back at an Earth that is changing and has changed. And I think one of the interesting things is that, uh, as Dave was saying, one of the challenges of any sort of like long-term moon base or anything like a lunar city or something like that is the environment. It's both keeping bits of the environment out, because out, moon dust is really nasty stuff that you don't want to be really having anything to do with, and keeping the cycling of carbon and oxygen and water going. And so I think in terms of thinking about the cycling of carbon and oxygen and water on the Earth, the moon will be a very interesting place to do it. But to go back to your, I think that there might be an I think the thing that's least likely is that there would be a civilization on the moon. There may be lots of little splinters of different civilizations. I don't think anyone will live on the moon in a sort of I think it's unlikely that people will sort of like be, be, see the moon as a country. And there's also the huge question we have no idea where the humans uh, can give birth on the moon.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. In the 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 gravity, the radiation, all the the rest of it. I mean,
5: radiation. You know, you can build shelters. Yeah. But no one knows how humans develop in low
0: gravity. It's one sixth gravity, or something like that. It's about one sixth.
5: So there's a haunting line. There's a short story by Walter J. Miller in uh, Walter Miller Junior. Sorry, in um, the 1950s called "The Line Man." And someone asks, why, are there only, why aren't there any women on the moon? Why aren't there any children? And he's pointed to the three graves in Lunar City that are six feet long of six-year-old children who grew themselves to death. It's a it's a grisly little moment.
4: You, you do cover quite... I, I, I like the, the parts of the book where you cover a lot of the fiction that's been written about the moon. What, for you, has been the sort of most... Well, either the one you've enjoyed the most or the one that you find just sort of uh, stimulates conversation the most or or thoughts about it.
5: I think the one that matters the most in that it's inspired a lot of other people, both to think about the moon and to think about the earth in in various ways is Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress um, because it imagines it's very much it's not actually particularly interested in the engineering of the moon except in the development of a mass driver to export things from the moon to the earth but it's very interested in this idea of a sort of like Somewhat, somewhat both strict and anarchic civilization that builds up because his view of the moon is that it's being used basically as a penal colony because people on the moon can't come back to the earth because they've adapted to the low gravity. And so it's this odd mixture of. Very tight control because of the environmental systems that have to be kept running. And incredibly loose control because actually within that anything goes. So there are all sorts of strange forms of marriage, all sorts of strange customs. I think that's a very in line book. The other one I'd really recommend at the moment, um, the, most re- the best recent book about the moon, I think, is a book called The Moon and the Other by John Kessel which is a description of an attempt to build a matriarchal utopia on the moon. It's an
0: absolutely wonderful Ooh, book.
4: Oh, I like the sound. I've not read either of those, so can, I've been so I, can writing you, them down. I can
0: actually imagine you as the queen of thank a you. matriarchal <laughs> utopia I yeah, We don't know whether the they moon. all live yet or not. No. But, uh, <laughs> or what, um, how ghastly it is. Would, yeah. would,
4: uh, you, know, would you ensure a moon, moon base thing? <laughs>
2: we've we've certainly looked at missions to the moon uh we were approached recently on uh, on one of the x prize uh, ventures um or the lunar x prize ventures um yeah i mean you know as long as the technology is proven and we can see that it has been used before and it's got heritage yeah i mean it's a it's an insurable risk um so uh, yeah if anybody's got a moon craft that they want to insure give me a call <laughs> What we well, can do. Yeah. Uh, over the last few months
0: here on space boffins we've been counting down the missions that uh, led to the first moon landing well the final mission in may 1969 was apollo 10 a test of the lunar lander in lunar orbit on board commander tom stafford command module pilot john young and lunar module pilot uh, gene cernan spoiler alert the mission was a tremendous success but it almost went disastrously wrong. In his last broadcast interview, before he sadly passed away, Gene Cernan told me what happened when they separated their ascent stage from the descent stage of the lander on the way back to the command module. You'll also hear from Jerry Woodfill, who was one of the engineers in Houston responsible for spacecraft alarm systems. Snoop, uh, Houston, we had you go for staging, over.
1: I was operating an abort guidance computer we were going to practice with, Flip a switch over here on the left. Tom knew which switch had to be changed. He hand takes it and flips it over the other direction. And so now in the spacecraft out we're on a primary guidance, I had put it on the abort guidance for this particular maneuver. Okay, you ready? And and the spacecraft spun out of control when we tried to stage. Son of a bitch. Only eight point four miles above the lunar fifty thousand feet. They're tumbling. in a gimbal lock? I saw the lunar horizon go by in different directions you you eight times know, in huh? fifteen seconds. Is that scary? Yeah, if you got time to be scared, but I, I didn't have time to be scared. Okay, let let's make this burn on the
5: axe, babe. Fortunately, Stafford decided what the only thing to do now is to just sh- shut everything off and take over manual control. Don't let the computer orient the vehicle, just do it manually. Yep, booze up, babe. There was two seconds. They got control of that the lunar lander yeah, ascent stage two seconds before they would have crashed into the moon. Uh,
3: Snoop Houston, we show you. close to Gemma Lock. Yeah, okay, something went wild there on that staging and we're all set. We didn't lock it. We're going ahead to, to the auto
1: maneuver. Roger. Tom finally was able to take over manually, and, and God bless his soul, he, he literally saved my life because they told, they told us afterwards that we'd gone around once or twice more, two things would have happened. We would have gone into what they called gimbal lock, where all our navigation equipment froze up. And, and you're really in trouble then. Uh, or we would have taken enough energy out of our orbit that there would have been no choice, but we were slowly drifted back down to the surface. But Tom was able to handle it. And like I say, he saved my life. So we found out, you know, we didn't have a hardware problem, we had a people problem. And and we found out, yeah, we are vulnerable. No matter how good we thought we were, no matter how many times we rehearsed it, you can screw up if you're not careful. So you you gotta be careful you don't get too overconfident was re- oh i've done that boom boom um, and then you're in trouble
5: charlie how was the stage good huh wait till that thing blanks. charlie brown
3: uh, houston they got hey, staging uh they uh had a while uh gyration though but they got it under control over
0: gene cernan talking to me back in 2017 I And mean, what's so interesting about that i was actually doing the interview with gene cernan about the gemini missions And his Gemini mission, his spacewalk from hell, he called it, which was horrendous. And he just launched into this talking about suddenly Apollo 10. I didn't even ask him a question about it. And obviously felt, uh, I think, you know, he was quite ill already at at that stage. Um, We didn't know it was going to be one of his last interviews. And we think that's his last broadcast interview. But he just started talking about Apollo 10 and kind of blaming himself. For this incident on Apollo 10. Um, you can hear more about that incident in, in 10987, which is coming up on the BBC World Service later this month. Uh, it's presented by shuttle astronaut Nicole Stott. And uh, we also feature some really quite excellent music uh, and Akka Bilk as well. They took some extraordinary music with them on the Apollo missions. They had these mixtapes they took with them on There's these a- kind of precursors to Walkmans. And the one for that mission... It's like some sort of ghastly, 60s, easy-listening compilation. It's interesting. Brian Eno
5: pointed out that they didn't take any tapes on Apollo 8, um, but nine onwards they Mm. all took tapes. And he said the one common denominator was that everyone took some country. And that's why. <laughs> Apart
0: from Rusty Switecart, actually. No, I think
5: he took some country too. Oh,
0: he said he didn't. Oh, maybe not. Uh, or, or maybe, he's maybe he's trying to deny it. Maybe <laughs> it's that every mission had The mission had did. Some country Yes, and, absolutely. Um, every mission did. But, yeah. the,
5: but he said that's why on his absolutely wonderful Apollo album that was, that, that was used for our line film, um, he uses steel guitar. And that mixture of the steel guitar and the out- otherworldliness is just wonderful.
0: Well, I mean, they really took Houston into space with them. Mm-hmm. I think that's what, you know, you get. There's a couple of songs, um, I and mean, I didn't include them in the programme, but they're quite common, come up a, a lot. Is, um, going Back to Houston mm-hmm. is one of them, and Galveston, which I think Sir uh, Glenn Campbell. Uh, Galveston, mm-hmm. they both feature prominently. Now the story of Rusty Schweikart. So he had classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took classical music. This, which we're talking about, you know, he listened to at home. Mysteriously, for his mission, the, until the last day, his tape went missing <laughs> and it was only on the last day his tape mysteriously appeared dave scott says uh, here, here's your tape is this what you've been looking for rusty so obviously you know they they didn't appreciate his music as much they just had to, they did have very much because
4: that would have been as we know from 2001 a sort of classical backdrop to the vision out that window you'll of the to, earth would have, have been to,
0: brilliant. You have to listen to 10987 to hear what happened when he put the music on. Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. okay.
4: Well, that's it for Space Boffins for this month. Thank you very much to our guests, David Wade and Oliver Morton, whose book, A History for the Future, The Moon, A History for the Future even, is out in May?
5: It's out in May in uh, the UK and in June in the US.
4: Excellent. In fact, I'll mention my book then, which is Wally Funk's Race for Space, paperback. Actually, it was out in the States in March, um, paperback here in the UK in June. David, have you got
0: anything to plug? Anything to plug? Uh,
2: Buy insurance. Buy insurance. uh, uh, (laughs)
4: Bonfire night, November the (laughs) 1st.
2: When I I write a book, I know where to go.
0: Okay. And oh yeah I've got, to, to... I've got a book out on space dogs <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so trivial doesn't it <laughs> yeah. but listen great, to my program 10987 it's really All good right, yeah yeah pictures, um do get in touch with us uh, you know how if you like us leave us a review somewhere if you don't don't do that and uh, do tell your friends about us uh, we'll be back next month and thanks for listening